0: hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to an email from famous patron Linden, in which he asks me the following thing. But before I do that, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This email is from patron Linden, famous patron Linden, who runs our Facebook fan group. If you want to join the Facebook fan group, it's a fun place to interact with other uh, other deserving listeners. Uh, and Patreon Linden says, "Hi Kirk, you've talked a few times about how many counselors don't know enough about particular topics. For example, you've talked about how counselors don't know enough about anxiety and trauma therapy. I wonder if some t- if if sometime you would do an episode about those areas which are widely considered significant and yet, and yet which many clinicians tend to have very little training for, like a top 10 or something. Top 10. I like, I like lists of top, top five, top 10. Uh, so here we go. This is my top 10 neglected areas of knowledge within the field of psychotherapy. Yeah. Number one, Trauma therapy and PTSD and dissociation, kind of lumping all those things into one. The vast majority of our clients have been traumatized, at least in some way, uh, and are suffering from some trauma reaction, whether it's full-blown PTSD or full-blown dissociation or some other issue and there's so – and it's – and everyone understand everyone understands the field of trauma, but in my experience, very few people understand the nuances, and many clinicians are actually providing therapy that is not only just ineffective but maybe harmful to clients. When I was – and I talk about this on the podcast all the time. When I was at the beginning of my career, I was one of those people. I didn't know. I, I, I knew – I thought I knew about trauma, and I thought I knew about PTSD, and I thought I knew about dissociation, and I thought I knew about trauma therapy, but I didn't really. And I was harming clients, um, frankly. Clients would come to me, and I would uh, provide what I thought to be—what was taught to me and what people were doing around me. I, I just sort of provided that approach, and clients would not come back to therapy, not because they hated me, but because they had become dysregulated uh, by my approach to their trauma treatment, and so, so that's an an absolute neglected area of knowledge. There's there's a lot of there's it's changing slowly over time, but there are many people who are excellent in this. But I would say, if you just took a poll of all the different clinicians who see clients with trauma, I would say a small minority of people are actually knowledgeable enough to actually do a good job. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is anxiety just in general. Again, you'd think this would be an easy topic for everyone to understand, but it's actually not, I, I don't think in my experience understood by clinicians, particularly how it presents in children and adults. So it's, um, I mean, in, in terms of uh, the, the way it presents, if someone comes to you and says, I'm anxious, then I think a lot of therapists probably know what to do. But a lot of people don't know they're anxious or they don't know how to describe their anxiety or something, particularly kids, right? And so anxiety, I find a lot... I find myself in supervision trying to help a lot of people understand what anxiety looks like in children and teenagers and adults who don't know what anxiety is. So and again you would think it's i think it's one of the most if not the most common category of psychopathology you know the most prevalent uh, area of mental illness that people suffer from um, i have suffered from panic and some some generalized anxiety in my past and i found that when i went to therapy a lot of therapists just didn't really i mean they were sympathetic or empathetic and and but they just didn't really know how to target the anxiety and how to really help me reduce my symptoms what ended up helping me actually for myself was that i just learned about anxiety in in depth and about how to treat it in depth and then just did it to myself which had a huge amount of benefits to me i i don't suffer from anxiety that much anymore but boy did i suffer from it in my 20s and um I mean, I still have tendencies, but but there's there's so many angles to come at anxiety. There, anxiety, I think, is – for people – I think there's a lot of clinicians who have never suffered from anxiety themselves. And so they see it as this really simple problem to solve. You know, you just – you know, you do a little bit of CBT and everything's okay. That's that's my anecdotal experience. But it, you have to come at it from a lot of different angles. It's not – It's not just a simple coping mechanism issue. There's there's a lot of things. There's often there's trauma involved, but I don't know. It's just it's very it's complicated. Anyway, number three of my top ten neglected areas of knowledge, and these aren't in any particular order, by the way. Number three is erotic 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 transference and erotic countertransference. So I've talked about this in the podcast before, but. Um, It's a neglected area of knowledge in terms of – there are many people who will graduate from a a master's program or a doctoral program having never even had the notion brought up that a client could be attracted to you or you could be sexually attracted to your client and that this is normal uh, within certain ranges and – there are things you can do about it, and you're supposed to talk about it. That is uh, completely ignored in in our field because our society completely ignores this sort of thing. So, um, And in our field, it's ignored, in my estimation, largely because of two reasons. One is that we're super puritanical in America and just avoid anything having to do with genitals or – eroticism or it's just we avoid it all unless it's like in very specific kinds of context like a beer commercial can absolutely have sexual over- overtones um you know that kind of stuff but if a therapist were to announce i'm sexually attracted to one of my patients a good number of people would get stressed out just by you just saying that but of course we're human beings that's of course it's going to happen right and so and by not talking about it, then it results in bad things. Um, you know, we're we're humans. We're not robots. There's it's normal to you know have a crush on somebody. It's just it's what you do with it. And so so one reason is just our puritanical. The other side is that we have this we have this very adolescent black and white um, understanding of what creepiness is, for lack of a better term. And so if and and I've actually experienced this before with trainees and supervisees and other therapists. If 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 someone starts talking about erotic counter, uh, erotic countertransference, meaning that the therapist has erotic feelings for a client, a good number of people, clinicians, you know, these are these are professionals. A good number of of these professionals will sort of giggle and make like a creepy, you know, oh that's creepy, and. There's this there's this it's a very adolescent way of looking at real human feelings. It's like, oh, that's so creepy, oh my God. You know, it's that kind of attitude. And I find that just to be so strange. And of course it exhibits everyone's insecurity and perhaps traumas and shame around this sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's like we're professionals now, we should be able to talk in a mature manner about the reality of humans. So anyway, number three, erotic transference, erotic countertransference in my top 10 neglected area of knowledge. Number four, how to find and understand research. Now, for doctoral people, they often don't suffer from this, but uh, maybe some do. But this is more of a problem for master's level people. And in my program, in my master's program, we try to alleviate um, this by having classes that are specifically designed to help students, help trainees understand how to find and how to understand research, how to look up research, how to read research, and I can tell you from personal experience that in for myself that for many years I didn't understand how to read research i just I, I would look at journal articles and most of it would just kind of boggle me at this point in my career, after getting my doctorate and after Uh, My dissertation and after writing, you know, or working on books that have a lot of uh, research that I'm reviewing and just having read literally, I don't know, tens of thousands of journal articles, you, you realize that there's a format to it. And so you... I can read journal articles a lot faster now. I can sort of skip around the the article and figure out what I need to look at. Um, whereas before, I was just like, what is going on, you know? And so uh, I, I feel like that's a neglected area because all of us clinicians should be using empirical evidence to guide our assessment and treatment of humans. It doesn't mean that we have to be uh, rigid to manualized treatment uh, modalities, but at the very least we should be familiar with research. For instance, every clinician, in my in my opinion, if a client comes in and say, you know the client is talking about um, anorexia or non-suicidal self-injury or something, it, every therapist after the session, in my opinion should should immediately go to the literature. And just either refresh themselves about what the literature is saying and the the treatment that is recommended regarding that, but or if they don 't know much about it, they should definitely look up the literature and This means that you have access to journals, which means you have to pay money to have access now i 'm a professor, so I have full access to everything, which is um, you know a huge benefit to, to my life. Uh, but, um, and you know, full disclosure, before I had access, there was a time when I wasn't teaching and full disclosure, I didn't subscribe to a service that provided me with access to journals. So I'm, I'm just as guilty as this. And in fact, I think I was, did I mention this? I think I did. Before I got my doctorate, I was woefully, yeah, I already mentioned that. (laughs) So I'm not, I'm not saying that this is anything that I wasn't, um, you know, uh, neglectful of. Uh, I, I think it's, Part, partly a problem of our profession in that we don't help people enough to understand research and to understand how to use research in their clinical work. I think that it, you know, for me, and I'm guessing for a lot of other clinicians, it's just so daunting and there's so much confusion and, and self esteem problems as you approach something that you're not very good at in terms of reading research that you just avoid it, which is what I did anyway. So that's number four. Number five, on my top 10 Neglected Areas of Knowledge, How to Handle Difficult Clinical Moments. My dissertation was on the experience of difficult clinical moments for seasoned psychotherapists. And they told me that they felt afraid and confused. So there are difficult moments while you're working with a client. You know, they might start yelling at you or they might have a meltdown or something difficult happens in session. And then what happens for the therapist? Well, they almost universally said that they felt afraid, like like terrified, uh, deer in headlights kind of a uh, situation, confusion. They often felt inadequate. They felt an urge to run away. They might even get angry at the client for making them feel this way. So there's, there's a lot of feelings, and there's very little talk about this in training programs, because they're kind of rare, but they do happen. But but I think they're rare enough that training programs don't feel the, nece- the necessity to talk about it. Also, they don't talk enough about how to handle it. Whenever I lecture about difficult clinical moments, people always will say, okay, great, now you've explained that there are difficult moments that we can all identify with, but what are we supposed to do in those moments? And it's complicated because, you know, Like in my study, some people told me about situations in which their client was extremely angry at them and screaming at them, or another situation in which a client showed up with a gun to session, and they didn't brandish the gun, but the gun was in the holster. The word brandish is funny. Do we use brandish for anything other than guns or weapons? You know, they're brandishing a sword or brandishing a gun. You know, I, I I don't say... That guy is really brandishing his pencil. <laughs> he pulled out his pencil and brandished it. You know, I just find certain words like that funny, but anyway, so we neglect how to handle difficult clinical moments. We, we neglect even the very notion that therapists would even have difficult clinical moments. That's why I focused on seasoned psychotherapists in my study, because I wanted people to understand that this wasn't just a, an experience for novice therapists. This was something that 30 years into your profession, you will you'll, you'll still experience difficult clinical moments in which you will be terrified and confused and upset. So that's number five, number six, how to, how to provide helpful supervision. I'm currently almost done with a book. Uh, maybe by the time this episode comes, I comes out, I will be done, but I'm writing a book on supervision and, and I'm talking with a lot of people about their experiences in, in clinical supervision. So if you're a therapist out there, you know, I'm talking about if you're not, um, therapists, uh, are often are always supervised by a, you know, a supervisor very closely, you know, the, the supervisor closely monitors their work with their clients for years. And so, um, for instance, in my career, I've had something like 15 supervisors over the span of a number of years. It's just something that we just do as a, as a way of helping therapists to develop and also to uh, monitor client welfare. And so um, in my research on the empirical evidence on supervision, I found that there's a high prevalence of inadequate supervision and harmful supervision. There's a lot... Uh, when, when we when you survey supervisees, a lot of supervisees are saying that their supervisors aren't good enough, or that their supervisors are actually harming their life. And this is my experience of supervisors. I've had, you know, like I said, 15 supervisors, and the vast majority of them were not very good. Um, I only had a few who I would say met my expectations of what a supervisor should be you know someone who was helpful someone who cared about me someone who made me feel safe someone who taught me someone who mentored me and and the vast majority of my supervisors were were either just sort of like you know meh but then there were some that were absolutely abusive to my life and traumatizing to me and so this is i think a huge problem uh and uh, and in my profession you would think we would be doing something about it but but um, there's very little efforts to change this. And so um, that's why I'm writing this book is I want to raise awareness around this. Okay. And also uh, provide guidance for supervisors in terms of the evidence and in terms of my experience as a supervisor. Okay, number seven, how to tailor therapy to the client instead of the other way around. Though It's archaic to me that in 2017 clients are coming to therapists who and the and the therapists are using their particular approach with all of their clients regardless of the presenting issue. Now this isn't every therapist of course, but it's it's kind of the way that things are taught in general in my profession. You're as a clinician encouraged to learn, you know, a, a, either one or a small set of psychotherapy theories and utilize that with all of your clients. But the research shows that the best way to approach your client is to know all the theories or all the all the main umbrella theories and then apply a tailored approach to that client given the situation at hand. For example, if someone comes in and they're talking about death anxiety, then existential therapy is probably called for if someone comes in and they are ambivalent about whether or not they want to stop using cocaine then solution focused therapy or motivational interviewing therapy is called for uh, not existential and not psychodynamic if someone comes in talking about trauma then trauma therapy exposure therapy behavioral therapies uh dbt's um your your um trauma-focused CBT, uh, models. If, if someone comes in and they want to explore their relationship issues, uh, that they've exhibited throughout their life, then psychodynamic interpersonal therapies are called for and, and so on. Okay. Um, a, a teenager comes in and, and is not doing well in school, but after a quick assessment, you figure out there's a lot of conflict in the home. Well, then family systems theories start to, uh, be called on. So, the, the issue is – but the way it is now is you have people who are, who are cognitive behavioral therapists and therefore use cognitive behavioral therapy with all of their clients. And I find this to just be atrocious. If uh, in the medical – and I, you know, I talk about this sometimes, but it, in the medical field, imagine if this were true. Like you have a cold and you, and you go to a, a, a doctor, a physician, and the physician is a surgeon. And so the surgeon decides to do surgery on you because you have a cold. Well, that's absurd, right? That the physician should should know no, this this particular presenting problem of a cold requires a, not surgery. It requires a different intervention. Or you go to a physician for headaches, but that particular physician is real is a you know, a foot doctor. And so that doctor puts you in a, in, a, in a brace for your foot as a way of trying to cure your headaches. This is, no joke, a very apt analogy to the way psychotherapy is working today. And it shows because clients will talk about their, some of their past therapists as not really addressing their issues. And I think part of it has to do with this. Okay, wow, famous patron Lyndon. You have unleashed all of my rants, as you can tell <laughs> by asking me to do a top ten. Um, yeah, if other people want to know other top tens, I, I kind of like this uh, this this model here. All right um, so so again, number one, trauma. Therapy, PTSD, dissociation. Number two, anxiety. Number three, erotic countertransference and transference. Number four, how to find and understand research. Number five, how to, how to handle and how to identify difficult clinical moments. Number six, how to provide helpful supervision. Number seven, how to tailor therapy to the client. Number eight is countertransference management. So now this probably isn't that neglected, but I think it's neglected enough in that. I will talk to other therapists and I'll and I'll say you know w- first off what is your countertransference and and they'll be like uh, I don't know and I find that uh, there there's a there's a wide range of abilities in this area and in my mind every therapist should be very good at this uh, very good at answering this question and I find that a lot of therapists um, in in my estimation could use some work in this area and then the subsequent thing that should be talked about is how to manage that countertransference. And I'm not talking about how to suppress it. That's that's not what countertransference management means. It means how to know yourself, how to monitor yourself, how to monitor the relationship with the client, how to know your biases, how to know where your culture is coming from, how to know your body and your physical sensations regarding emotion how to regulate your emotions, how to uh, know when to uh, try to hide that emotion from the client and when not to try to hide it from the client, when to just divulge it so that the client isn't driven crazy by knowing that you're having some feeling but that he, but you're not talking about it. Um, knowing how to take care of yourself, self-care af- after the fact, after sessions. Um, all that kind of stuff I, is a is actually a very robust field in the in the field of psychotherapy. That there's a lot of research. There's a lot of models of countertransference management. And if you and if you asked a particular therapist what model of countertransference management do you use, they would say like, "Huh, I didn't know there were models." And so I find that to be one of the neglected areas of knowledge. Okay, number nine is grief therapy. So I'm I'm almost done with my book on supervision, but I'm not almost done (laughs) with my book on grief, which I've been writing for like three years. Um, That's another area that, again, once I started looking into the empirical research, it's it's absolutely shown that a uh, a lot of therapists, a, a a very high percentage of therapists are actually not only inadequate when talking about grief with clients, but they're actually harming clients. I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but there's this one famous uh, meta analysis that demonstrated that when a person who is grieving, say from a death of a spouse or, or divorce or some other kind of grief. And so when a, when a client goes to a therapist, they are something like 48% or 45% likely to be harmed by the therapy. Now, all all forms of therapy for all problems. There's a there's a percentage of people who will actually be harmed by it. For instance, when people have depression and they go to therapists, there's there's a there's a five percent chance that the therapy will actually harm them. It's just it's just one of those harm meaning that their symptoms get worse, and uh, it's just. Uh, the variance of, of treatment and variance in reaction to treatment. You know, you give everyone a vaccine for the flu, and a percentage of people are going to have a bad reaction to that. The vast majority of people are going to actually benefit from that, but there's always going to be some people that are, that are going to be harmed by the treatment. Well, when it comes to grief therapies, something like in the 40 per, 40s percentiles, uh, people are actually harmed by grief treatment. And the reason for this. Uh, is hypothesized by others and uh, speculated by me is that therapists are just woefully terribly trained regarding grief therapy. They're not uh, given again, as with other topics that I've talked about, you could graduate with a doctorate or a master's that uh, in the clinical field and not have taken any course in grief therapy. And it's a very, and not have even ever talked about grief which is just so strange, right that you could take you could graduate with a doctorate or graduate with a master's in the clinical field, and having never taken a class on trauma, having never taken a class on counter transference, having never taken a class on grief therapy it's it's bizarre because grief and trauma are the most common things that people suffer from in my estimation that people come to therapy for uh, I hypothesize that actually. Everyone is suffering from some form of grief at all times. So to say that, uh, you know, to say grief therapy is just to say therapy, you know. Everyone has unresolved grief in from their past, whether it be their, their parents' divorce or uh, the fact that they moved to a new town and lost all their friends or they were fired from a job or they had to just quit a job or a breakup. That's a big one. Every everyone, you know, by a certain age has been through a difficult breakup or divorce or their child moves out of their house. That's a loss. Or they I don't know, there's just, you know, or a pet dies, right? So when you when you add up all those losses, by the time you're 25 and forward, you will have suffered from at least one, if not a number of them in a very significant way. And I find that most people have have not been given the opportunity to properly grieve those losses that you know they're they're devastating and i've also known a lot of people who come to me and after investigating i figure out that they have a a grief and a loss that they've been suffering from for decades and and there's nothing wrong with that it's just like the 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 you know like they're they were very close to their mother and their mother dies and you know and for decades after that, they're still in pain about that. And I've what I've discovered is it's just very normal, whereas a lot of therapists think, oh, what's wrong with that person? So uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about grief. And once I finish that book, I'll be talking all about it. But anyway, number 10, social constructionism and how therapists have an ideology or a way of thinking that must be acknowledged. Social constructionism... Is to me such an obvious topic that should be known to all of us, but it's something that, for whatever reason, is just not discussed enough. I, I'm guessing it's because it's it's hard to understand. It's sort of esoteric in some ways, but in some ways, it's really just not. Um, so, and it's related to countertransference. But anyway, so social constructionism uh, and uh, the other related fields, um, postmodernism. Um, you know uh, cultural relativism these these sorts of things I think are so crucial for therapists to at least have some grasp of, uh, otherwise they are at risk of really misunderstanding a lot of situations and and either being not so great to their clients or even potentially harming their their clients now i couldn 't relegate myself to ten. A famous patron linen, so I have to give two more. <laughs> Number 11 is how to keep proper records. I can't tell you <laughs> how many times I, uh, so I, you know, for those who listen to this podcast, you know that I'm one of my most favorite Schadenfreude things to do is to read these case studies of other therapists being sued by clients for doing bad things and one and without fail uh I, I think, if you know, uh, at least the majority of the time, one of the major problems that these clinicians will have that will result in them being sued successfully is that they weren't keeping proper records and or they wouldn't hand over their freaking file when it was requested like they're supposed to. And so, uh, and when I talk with other clinicians, uh, experienced clinicians, I find that a lot of them just don't really understand the... The implications of what their file is. Um, and they, uh, and it's not because they're stupid, it's because they're just not told, they're not taught. And um, I, I find that, and, and to be honest, when I was a younger supervisor, I thought I knew what a good file was supposed to look like, but I didn't really. And so I was actually teaching people how to do files that were. I just didn't know, and so it's just hard to find guidance in our field around what exactly are the factors that play into keeping good records as a therapist to to protect yourself and to do good by the by the client. Um, a lot and, and a lot of the problems actually emerge from agencies because most, if not all, therapists will begin their career at a mental health agency, and these agencies have very particular factors at play that affect the way that they keep files. And one of the factors, which is very different from other venues like private practice, is that the clients don't have much power. The the clients who typically go to mental health agencies are uh, marginalized groups. They're immigrants, they're ethnic minorities, they're poor they're, they're just marginalized groups who who don't have much power. And so what ends up sort of happening at these mental health agencies is the the way that the records are kept, they don't necessarily respect the clients very much because the clients never know that they can actually complain. Or if they do complain, they don't know who to complain to. Or if they do complain to the actual right person, they're not respected. And so there's this, there's this kind of shift away from honoring the confidentiality of the client, honoring the wishes of the client, honoring the autonomy of the client. And I see this all the time where uh, clinicians will emerge from that mental health service uh, world and they'll enter private practice and then they'll hire me as their supervisor. And I have to spend a lot of time reorienting their mind to putting the client first because if you know, there are certain things you have to have in the file, regardless of how the client feels about it. But nothing should be in the client file that is going to piss off the client, right? I mean, uh, presumably what you're doing, I mean, unless you're in a super adversarial relationship with the client, which can happen at times, uh, under certain circumstances, like they're court ordered or something. But for the vast majority of private practice clients, it, that's not the case. And so I find that, I have to remind not not only just for ethics and treating clients uh, well, but also to cover your own ass. Because if in private practice, your file is pulled, which happens and it goes to court for some reason, like there's a custody battle or something, and the client reads something in your file that they're upset about that you put in there, like, you know, they uh, masturbate to... Gay porn or something, and they're not out as uh, in that way, then they're going to sue you for putting that in your file in the file when it didn't need to be in there, or at least they're going to be motivated to sue you, or they'll be motivated to take action against you, and 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 for and for good reason because this uh, did you know did they consent to you, to that to you putting that detail in their file? Did, did they want you to put that in their file? Did you need to put it in their file? And the answer is no. There's no purpose of putting that detail in the file. It's not needed. Um, That's why we have psychotherapy notes, which actually are in a different file, which don't get pulled when you actually uh, have your file pulled, which is all written out in the HIPAA rules. And so I I find that I have to really beat this into people. And it takes actually a long time uh, for me to uh, convince people of this, of respecting clients. It's just a weird thing, you know. Because in these mental service agencies, again, I'm I'm being very general here, and uh, I'm sure there are agencies who don't do this, but and I actually know there are agencies who do. But it kind of depends on the supervisor that's on site there. But in general, these uh, these mental service, mental health service agencies. They just take a a very relaxed sort of point of view on that anyway. And my last one number twelve is the importance of the relationship. The relationship with so so most people, most trainees, uh, now this is changing. there's There's definitely a, a an emerging loud voice from a number of people that are saying look the relationship is the most important thing the relationship you have with your client is the most important thing but a lot of trainees and a lot of therapists frankly are uh, are sort of socialized to focus again on theory as i was talking earlier they're 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 forced to choose a theory you got to choose cognitive behavior you got to choose you uh, know this model of therapy but empirical science demonstrates that the, the variance on outcomes that the particular model has is much smaller than the variance on outcomes that the relationship has. In other words, if, if you want to really make sure that you raise the likelihood of positive outcomes for your clients, then you should put a lot more energy into the relationship with the client, which is sort of a humanistic, interpersonal, psychodynamic way of looking at things. Um, you should really focus on your relationship, a positive regard, uh, r- relationship rupture management, counter transference management, empathy, listening well, these kinds of things. That's what I mean by relationship. Making the client feel heard, making the client feel understood, making the client feel as though you care. These are all way more. Um, effective areas to put your energy into than any particular model. So you could be psychodynamic, you could be CBT, you could be systems, you could be neurobio person, and that's fine. But it but you should be much more focused on the relationship uh, because that's where most of your outcomes variance is going to occur. And so uh, now this is changing. More people are, uh, you know, I hear more therapists talking about the relationship. It's better than it was 10 or 20 years ago when very few people were talking about it. But uh, it's getting better, but it's still mostly ignored. In In my, uh, my my vision of the future is that all therapists consider themselves to be relationship therapists. You know, they, can, they, they we don't really have a word for it, but um, all, well, maybe humanistic, like all therapists say that, Rogerian in some way or all therapists will say that they have uh, you know a, a pretty big humanistic through line in all of their therapies with their clients you don't hear that language um, you hear it you're, you're hearing it emerge but um, but not only is that empirical science but it's also just good practice in my opinion I mean you know imagine all of you out there listening um, You've, a lot of you probably have been in therapy, but if you haven't, you know, just imagine you're going to a therapist. You really want your therapist to listen to you well, right? You want your, list, you want your therapist to understand you. You want your therapist to get you and to really, you know, hear you and to pay attention and to uh, care about you. You want your therapist to be very present and authentic And if something kind of wonky happens in your relationship, you know, like the therapist puts their foot in their mouth or something, you want that therapist to apologize and say, I'm sorry for saying that stupid thing I said last week. That is the baseline for any therapy to occur, regardless of what the problem is. It doesn't matter what the problem is. You need that relationship first. And for many people, for many clients, that relationship is the therapy because it heals the relationship, um, r- problems that they experience as children and that sort of thing. Okay, so that's my top 10 or 12 neglected areas of knowledge. Number one, trauma therapy, PTSD dissociation. Number two, anxiety. Number three, erotic transference, countertransference. Number four, how to find and understand research. Number five, how to handle difficult clinical moments. Number six, how to provide helpful supervision. Number seven, how to tailor therapy to the client. Number eight, countertransference management. Number nine, grief therapy. Number ten, social constructionism. Number eleven, how to keep proper records. And number twelve, the importance of the relationship. So, thank you, famous patron Linden, for letting, uh, for suggesting this topic, and uh, giving me a chance to rant into a microphone while I sit alone in a room all by myself, ranting to myself. And listening to myself in these headphones that I'm wearing right now. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself. Let me know what you think about this episode uh, and take care of yourself because you deserve it.